0: Hello lovely listeners and welcome to this week's episode of the Olive Magazine podcast. My name is Laura, I'm the editor of Olive Magazine and your host. Coming up today, our web editor Alex found herself at Soho's pop-up sparkling wine bar, Fizz, to chat about lesser-known sparkling wines and what to drink if we have another Prosecco shortage. Brazilian bubbles, anyone? Olive's food director Janine has been speaking to Bristol food writer Genevieve Taylor about the recent street food explosion. She's been digging deeper into the recipes we featured from her new book in the latest issue and cookery writer adam ventured to london's borough market something we all should be doing with bread ahead founder matt jones talking about how important good bread is and how achievable it
6: is at home first up here's alex Okay, hi guys. I'm here with Barney Lewis, who's just set up sparkling wine bar Fizz with friends Jordan and Max at Lights of Soho Gallery on Brewer Street. So the trio has sourced the world's best sparkling wines to serve in a relaxed setting. And they're also putting on a bottomless sparkling brunch at the weekends, which I'm looking forward to trying. Uh, so hi, Barney.
2: Hi there, how are you Nice doing? to
6: see you. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how you came up with the idea behind Fizz?
2: Absolutely. So. We uh, initially spent a lot of time out in Barcelona, right. and you nice. may well, yeah, very nice, it's a really <laughs> lovely place, as I'm sure you probably know. Yes. Um, so we spent a lot of time out there, mainly because we had friends who were living out there over the last maybe five to ten years, and um, fell in love with the Champagneria, which is a carver bar out there.
6: Right. And so is that a, the name of a specific place? That is okay. the name
2: of a specific place. It's just down, if you're ever in Barcelona, it's just down off La Ramblas.
5: Okay.
2: At La Ramblas. I've probably pronounced that terribly. Yes. I'm, oh. I don't profess to be a linguist. <laughs> um, but it is a fantastic place. And there are a couple of other ones similar to it, like Zampagnet. Okay. So just a couple of recommendations if anyone's ever in uh, Barcelona. Cheers. We're always up for those. <laughs> yeah, for some fantastic carver bars. Um, the reason I mention them is we were inspired by them for a number of reasons. Um, most importantly for their focus on things being fun, social, and completely the opposite to a champagne bar. Okay. You know, champagne bar. So taking out the
6: snobbery and... Yeah,
2: taking away all that sort of, let's let's call it boring parts of what okay. is, you know, what is like the, uh, <laughs> Champagne bars are great
6: as well. Yeah, champagne Maybe bars are great as this, well, but just for not,
2: not for us. Yeah. We believe in making things super social, super accessible. So that yeah. comes through in pricing, that comes through in having lots of things by the glass. Yep. Yeah not having to buy bottles the whole time and taking all of the kind of, you know, maybe pretense out of anything like that. Okay. And so that's really our focus. And so that focus was born from the Carver Bars of Barcelona. Cool. Okay. And so that was really what inspired the idea. Um, It got us really looking into... Initially, actually got us thinking about English sparkling. We thought, you know what, can we do something that's a domestic, UK domestic version of the the Carver Bar? Okay. And uh, we looked long and hard. We, you know, probably sampled in excess of let's say 80 vineyards in the uk just wow. a quick fact um, wow yeah.
6: how, how many how many are there
2: 80 yeah. no 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 so there's um last time i checked there was about 450 plus vineyards oh in the uk okay
6: um what are your favorite english sparkling wines
2: so i'll probably be told off for say for like uh, singling out a couple but um some of my favorites obviously the, these are these are sparkling focused favorites yes our um, Camel Valley down in Cornwall. Yes. We do actually like have one of their roses on our list, but okay. that's neither here nor there. Um, another favourite is Court Garden, which we don't currently have on the list, but we look to bring in at some point. And where's that produced? So Court Garden is in in Kent, okay. um, which is a fantastic place for uh, English, English vineyards, given the fact that it has very similar terroir to... Um, to champagne, to champagne, Champagne, sorry, I don't know why I said Champagne. <laughs> However you want to, yeah, how want to pronounce it. That is definitely no way to pronounce it, but for some reason I managed to lose my breath at that point. Um, and so the, the landscape is very similar. Um, back, you know, when we had um, Pangea, you know, one land, one landmass on the, on, on the surface of the earth, those areas were very close to each other.
6: OK, yeah. And so, so that's,
2: that's one of the reasons for why there's such similar terroir, so similar soil type. Um, you know, not climates now, because you're slightly moved, but they are very close in climate okay. as well.
6: So what's happened recently is um, I think a lot of people are becoming more aware of English sparklings because they used to just know about champagne and Prosecco. Um, but now I think English sparkling wines really like seeing a, a movement which is great because it's all like homegrown and everything but um what we, I heard and I don't know if it's a rumour so we had a Prosecco shortage recently which just sounds <laughs> hilarious so um, was this an actual shortage or just a rumour of panic that spread amongst Prosecco lovers in Britain do you think?
2: So um, it's a bit of a mix of, of both
6: Okay um,
2: The media got hold of it and ran, ran with it like Gosh, they like to Gosh that's media folk Yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> which you know I completely understand why yeah. there was a shortage Yeah um, This is last year um,
6: Do you know and- why that was? <laughs>
2: It was just simply demand. Okay, we're just drinking too much of it. Yeah, the UK is drinking a lot of... um, We are one of the largest drinkers of Prosecco in the world. Um, And, um, you know, (laughs) that's a great thing for Prosecco as a region. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously... Potentially a little scary thing for them as well, because there's a large dependence on the British population to carry yeah. on drinking. So,
6: is it mainly British they export to?
2: Uh, well, they're actually increasing exports, exporting to places like the USA, which is now okay. growing quite fast, right. or very fast, I should say. Um, but the UK is one of the largest, um, so there is a big, there is a big, um, a big demand, is not there? Yeah, there's big demand.
6: So. If there's another Prosecco shortage, I've heard that actually we don't need to panic as you guys have found loads of other European sparkling wine options for us to try. Can you tell us about a few of those?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So we've got loads. Sparkling wine as a category is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and potentially sometimes maybe that's not very well educated amongst everyone around, you know, because we have such sort of big headline names like yep. Prosecco. Um, and other names, you know, like Carver Champagne. Carver even, yeah. Cremant is a, is a very popular one, um, which is sort of the, the French alternative to Champagne. Mm-hmm. And you have different Cremants for different areas, so like Cremant de Bougogne or Cremant um, de Loire. Um, and these are just different areas of, um, of France.
6: Okay. And how does that differ from Champagne?
2: Just different regions. So Prosecco comes from a specific area mm-hmm. in Italy. Um, and the same with Champagne. It comes from a specific area of France. Okay. Um, And the Loire Valley and Burgundy is also different areas.
6: Okay. And what about some... I've heard you've got um, an Austrian sparkling.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we've got a a pretty special Austrian. So I'm going to just make an apology to all of your listeners because I am heavily dyslexic and my pronunciation of things is just not gonna be right.
6: Well yeah we we often have problems with like different um different languages so we won't we won't hold it So yeah, it at all. I just I just want
2: to apologise yeah. to all, all listeners. All the Austrian um, listeners. All the out Austrian there. listeners, all the French listeners <laughs> who are like, ugh disgusting. <laughs> How dare he pronounce this the wrong way. And we've even got some uh, some uh, French members of the team around us right now I'm sure, inside of dying, <laughs> as I pronounce different areas of France. Um, but um, we've got uh, an Austrian um, by the producers of Fuchs right. and
6: Right. Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah,
2: it's very good. Um, there are actually two sets of couples who came together okay. to decide to only... I mean, they do other wines. They both have two separate vineyards, but mm. they've come together to make a range of pet gnats, And I don't know if... Maybe this is an area of, um, I should maybe give a little bit of info around a pet nat, but Mm -hmm. it's a a purely natural fermented sparkling wine. Okay. So it doesn't have um, the double fermentation like you would have in a normal, say, a champagne or Carver, in fact, which follow the traditional method of sparkling wine production. What they do actually is they they make the wine and during the first fermentation, uh, carbon dioxide is given off. And instead of doing a second fermentation, where they add um, a dosage um, of sugar and yeast to increase bubbles, they actually just trap it at that point. Okay. And carbon is kept in there, so they don't need to add um, sulphur dioxide. Might, might be getting a bit too technical right now.
6: No, no, it's great. <laughs> we like but, um, a bit
2: of geekiness. Yeah, this is a bit of geekiness. Um, so what happens is uh, the, carbidox, the natural dioxide that's given off from the fermentation process acts as a protector. from the wine getting oxidized. Okay. Whereas normally what you do is you have um, uh, sulfur dioxide used to prevent oxidization of the wine. In a pet okay. nat, you don't have any of this um, artificial gas introduced.
6: Right, so is it going to be a lighter sparkle?
2: Good, a good. Petillon. Y- yes, exactly, like you know your stuff. Got...
6: <laughs> well, yeah. a few things. So we, the, the Austrian ones are like that?
2: So not all Austrian ones, okay. but this specific, specific one that we've got on the list, okay. which is made by um, Fuchsenhast. And is what the
6: flavours like?
2: Unbelievable. So it really, you can really taste the grape in a, in a, in a pet nat, mm-hmm. And that's because of the fact that it is truly an like, organic, biodynamic wine. Mm-hmm. And as a result, what you end up having is something that, you know, as I said, comes through very strong in terms of grape tastes. It's not super f- fizzy, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really, really, like, it's perfect for a summer's evening.
6: So is it, is it a bit lighter?
2: A bit lighter, okay. more, um, more grape in, in the taste, yeah, delicious.
6: Great. Right. Okay. So um, I've heard you've also gone as far as Brazil in your search of sparkling wines. Yeah. Can you tell us about your Brazilian sparkling wine?
2: <laughs> so based in Soho, we've obviously had a bit of fun with the, yeah, with the Brazilian options. Like you have. <laughs> um, we even debated maybe having sort of like an equivalent of sort of a maybe, I don't know. Actually, I will stop where I'm going now. But you can guess where I was going to go yes, with that conversation. Yes, I can. So Miolo is, um, is our Brazilian option. Okay. It is a fantastic Brazilian, um, it's, come, it's very similar in terms of, a. it's kind of our version of a champagne on the list, okay. it's one of our more expensive ones, um, okay. it's about 50 or so pounds a bottle. Um, it's as far as we go in terms of cost, mm-hmm. uh, and in this particular pop-up, we've avoided um, having any champagnes on the list. Okay. And that's not because we don't want to serve champagnes in the future is just to really make a strong, me- like have a very strong message going across that we're not a champagne bar, Yeah, we're a sparkling wine bar which focuses mm-hmm. on sparkling wine from across the world, okay. everywhere, so as you say, Brazil, Austria, France, Italy, um, where else have we got? Australia, we also have um, other places, I mean, ones that we will we'll be bringing onto the list uh, as time goes on, we've got uh, one from Israel as well, I mean, the wow. list goes on, it's all over the world, Okay. Um, and sparkling wine is incredibly well-paired to food.
6: OK, yeah. So so in terms of, like, sparkling wine, usually, correct me if I'm wrong, but when the majority of people talk about sparkling wine, they're thinking it's going to be white. But I've actually had a sparkling red tonight. You have. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your sparkling reds and, like, how they differ in taste to a normal red wine?
2: Absolutely. So the sparkling reds... are. Uh, Basically, we've got a couple of options on the sparkling reds. Um, one of which is from Reeves in France, which is a rocamboule. Now, uh, we call that the Beginner's Guide to a Sparkling Red. Okay. It's like a, it's a dark rosé. You can still taste the tannins. Okay. And that's really the big point here with sparkling reds. You have a good, con, uh, a good um, complementary tannin taste in the wine. Okay. You know, like you yeah. would with a, you know, with a red, any kind of red. Great. Um, and obviously, that varies depending on the type of red that they've they've then turned to be sparkling. So, on the list, we've got, um, as I mentioned, the rocambou, which is from Reeves in France. But then we also have the one that you're just tasting now. which It's is very
6: a, hefty. Yeah. It's, it's a, very dark there's red. There's no
2: messing around with this red. Yeah. Um, this red is uh, a Shiraz. Right. Um, from the Barossa Valley in Australia. Okay. Um, yep. Which, uh, and this, you know, as like many Shirazes, it's, it's got a good fruity taste to it. Um, but it is very much a red. You know, this, is, um, this is a red sparkling. And the big difference, as I mentioned, is that tannin coming across. Yeah and it's it's delicious. Yeah, it is. It's um, great. Really well paired with yeah. cheese. It works really well with our cheese boards. Fat. Um and I can uh, you know, recommend it more to big what red wine drinkers.
6: Yeah, well I'm going to go and finish the rest of this now. But um so the next time you fancy some bubbles, um come to Fizz. so it's um open till late August aren't, aren't you? We're
2: open till the middle of August exactly.
6: Yeah. Um at Lights of Soho which is on Brewer Street in Soho. So um if you look on olivemagazine.com as well we'll be putting something about sparkling wines so thank you very much for having us
2: no thank you very much for letting us be on on board
0: (laughs) next we have janine chatting to food writer genevieve taylor
3: Okay, so I'm here this week with Genevieve Taylor and we're talking about street food. Hi, Genevieve. Genevieve has written a brilliant feature for us. Well, actually, we've taken a feature from her new street food book um, and it's a collection of... I, I, I would probably think you've got most street food that anybody knows about in there. How many recipes is it? I
5: hope so. There's, there's something like 120 recipes, I think, from all over the globe. Yeah. yeah,
3: And street food's obviously really hot at the minute. It's summer, everyone's outside, everyone's yeah. eating from vans, it's really trendy. So I thought we'd get um, Genevieve in just to talk about... Um, her inspiration for the book so so many recipes um, how how on earth did you gather it together what was your process i mean i'm fascinated to know how you and because we i've i've tried six of them and they're all absolutely cracking and perfect so i just i just need to know like how did you do it <laughs> how did i do it well um the book was
5: commissioned by master chef oh, and yeah, the remit yeah. was um global street food yeah. so they wanted recipes from all over the world um luckily I've done masses of travelling over the years that helps so I just sort of <laughs> sat down did a yeah. lot of brainstorming and thought about all the amazing things I'd eaten in all the different places I'd been to in the world so that yeah. was my starting point the things that I like to eat yeah. and then I kind of filled in the gaps of places I hadn't been like Mexico and South America with kind of just research
3: really yeah, yeah. and did you go did you visit any street food places around where you are or yeah I mean
5: I, I live in Bristol and we're lucky enough to have all sorts of sort of street food Mm. on the streets and in kind of markets and stuff like that. So yeah, lots of eating out was
3: done. What was the testing process? Because it's a lot of recipes and I think people are probably quite fascinated how you put a massive book like that together. Well, you just, you literally have to just
5: just sort of make everything. You just live in it for six months. just live in it. I did it, during the testing and process for me it was kind of December through to March Mm -hmm. so it was just sort of before and after Christmas so it was just like (laughs) cooking and cooking and it got to a point where I was like I don't want to eat another deep fried thing give me
3: (laughs) some salad but um yeah it was quite intensive. How typically how many times do you think you would have to try a dish before you felt like you nailed it to be honest most things i just try them once because i that's i know good. that means you're a good writer it's just the,
5: um, <laughs> i don't know i spend quite a lot of time thinking about recipes yeah, before i, I do, start yeah. to cook them so i've sort of planned it in my mind and yeah. i know what i want it to taste like and then it's just sort of doing the process and i'd be quite disappointed if i got to the end and I had to do it again yeah, you know yeah so, so it's just like little tweaks yeah and things just like that. little bits little tweaks yeah. and sometimes you have to go back to do something again but not not often so you said you did a lot of traveling what, yeah. what are
3: your kind of hero uh, countries for street food do you think
5: um, Southeast Asia, really. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's where I've spent most of my time um, traveling. Was yeah. you know Cambodia and Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, all those places. They just kind of nail it, and I think it's the combination of the kind of amazing weather, yeah, really, and also all the fresh ingredients. And everybody wants to cook kind of quick and hot, and yeah. You know, so it's all conducive to sort of
3: just <clears throat> doing it on the street, really, and that's that's fab. And you obviously went out and and ate a lot. So, I mean, what What are your... Did you have tips for people who are, like, a little bit... Because I, I know I've been to Thailand and someone said to me, oh, was it don't eat the... You're all right if people are cooking meat from raw, but if yeah. it's cooked meat sitting out in the sun, then yeah. maybe avoid that or that's something. That's
5: probably what? quite a good tip. Yeah. I mean, I always do that thing of going to somewhere that's really busy. Really busy. Because, really you know, they've got a good turnover. And kind of full of local people, really, because yeah. they they just kind of know don't they Yeah. so um so yeah go somewhere where
3: they're turning it over really quick yeah and where well, there's a big queue yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. great big queue <laughs> cool well let's talk about some of the recipes in the feature because um there's some really lovely ones in here so the, a, a really intriguing one for me is chicken chicken 65 chicken 65 so yeah. where did this come from so
5: this um This is a sort of Indian recipe, and there's loads of different theories about why it's called Chicken 65, Okay, sort of masses. Basically, it's it's kind of marinated chicken, it's very fiery, lots of chilli, lots Mm. of spices and stuff, and then it's um, almost stir-fried really quickly, so it's... The chicken is not much sauce, it's not yeah. like a curry, so it's all the, it's almost like a bar snack, right? Um, sort of really spicy bits of chicken. And you know, some people say it's because it was invented in 1965, or even there's 90, there's 65 types of chili <laughs> in it, which scary. I can't quite believe. But it's very, it is very hot, it's very hot. I mean, we, I think we've very put that hot. on there, yeah. But yeah. um, and it's fantastic with like a sort of super cold beer, you know, it's the sort of thing. So you, you literally,
3: eat. you're literally eating it with um, it's, it's a snack, it's not it's, actually to be eaten with rice. Rice no i mean with you beer. could eat
5: it with rice but it's it's designed as a sort of snack like a bar
3: snack really mm. yeah it looks so gorgeous and then um we've got a couple of eggy ones and um, we've yeah, got the brick aloof which is, um, which is it's such a gorgeous idea oh, tell us about that
5: well this um i ate my first brick in tunisia when i was about 16 and okay. it's <laughs> one of those things that's always stuck in my mind yeah. you know and and out there it's often just the egg and the brick pastry which is kind of like phyllo but more thinner and more stretchy um so I've always thought about that. And in this one, I made it a teeny bit more elaborate and I, more of a kind of meal, really. So it's got some chickpeas mm. and some spices and some harissa. So describe how you it. put it
3: together, because this is the bit that's quite fascinating for me. Well, you lay out your
5: pastry. I've used phyllo because mm. genuine brick pastry is very difficult to make and also very difficult to buy in this country. I, I think mean, it's one can, of those things that, you know,
3: we c- you, you just, it's not worth making it. <laughs> it's not You can worth make it, but it's not it worth it. it. Because other people make it, it. it so much
5: better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and actually, filo is a pretty good substitute. Yeah, Once so it's, it's filled with it's lovely good. stuff and deep-fried, yeah. it exactly. tastes pretty good. Yeah. So. yeah, so you lay out your sheet of filo, yeah. and then you put in... Um, I used a sort of ring of chickpeas in the middle, almost oh, yeah. like, to make a
3: wall. And then to you, contain to, an and egg And then container. you crack your
5: raw egg into it, and then, yeah. then it's got some... Um, harissa sauce and some coriander and stuff and then you basically fold it all up really quickly and chuck it in the deep fat fryer which sounds like a leap of faith to me yeah 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 and it doesn't leak out no because we did do it in the kitchen and I was like no way (laughs) and then you just fry it until the pastry is really crisp but the egg inside is all sort of oozy and and the picture's
3: beautiful because the picture is the little brick Uh, filo pastry parcel like crispy deep fried and it's cut into it and then this gorgeous creamy orange yolk is just kind of leaking out of that and i mean nice, yeah. it is it's mouth-watering to look at especially because i haven't had breakfast yet, no i'm so, starving as well you know. mm. and let's talk about kibber because that's something that i've been seeing a lot of recently i think that's quite a sort of trendy trendy little snack isn't it
5: Yeah, i guess it's a kind of meaty version almost of um almost of a falafel so you make it with bulgur yeah. wheat and then you it's quite a weird recipe to make because you you make a sort of meaty spicy filling for the, for filling, the middle yeah. so it's like a it's sort of like shaped a bit like a rugby shaped yeah. falafel yeah inside has got kind of mince and pine nuts and spices and then you make um the case is made with bulgur wheat that you grind up with more yeah mince. you put more
3: meat in it i found that when i was reading the recipe it's weird bit, yeah. it is
5: weird but that's kind of how it does <laughs> how it's done and the meat kind of makes a kind of pasty pate glue i suppose that yeah. holds the bulgur oh, wheat together yeah, and course. then that makes a kind of a case yeah. to hold the lovely filling inside, yeah,
3: and then and then that and gets, again, um, deep fried gets deep fried. Do you, do you bread do you bread crumb that or does it just get no. straight deep fried? No, it
5: just gets straight deep fried. And again, it's
3: a beautiful colour, and that's yeah. kind of served up with a tahini, which a again is A lovely lemony tahini yeah. kind of dipping sauce, just made from sesame seeds tahini, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it like is. ground down sesame. Yeah, it's ground down sesame seeds. Seeds. And that's really trendy. And they
5: are. I mean, these kibbeh are fairly fiddly to make, but the most amazing thing about them is you just you, you know you can. A couple of hours to getting it done, and then you can freeze them all oh, individually. Yeah. So if you have, and then a take a handful out the freezer and cook yeah. them from
3: frozen. you could have a kibbeh party.
5: You could have a kibbeh party,
3: yeah. <laughs> and everyone could get their own kibbeh. <laughs> I think you know, street food. It's not. It's not diet, is it? It's I think not diet. There's loads of deep no,
5: fried stuff. <laughs> no, we not love it. Diet. And actually, it was quite hard writing this book. In <laughs> kind of January, February, March, were when you're feeling
3: a bit like your jeans were getting know, a little bit yeah, tighter. Yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs>
5: You know, you wouldn't do it like I did it and eat three different things every day for three months, would you? You'd no. just have a few. But as bits. I said
3: earlier, like street food is one of those things where, you know, a few years ago you would you'd go to a festival and there would be like there'd be the classic. Pork, pork in a bun or like dodge burgers yeah go to festivals these days and it's like a street food yeah, yeah, um, it's festival amazing. because street food has exploded it has. gone in everywhere you go to a wedding there's probably a street food stall there yeah. um it's just become like ubiquitous now tell us about because you you're, you live in bristol yeah. don't you what's, yeah. what's, the, what's the scene like that there? there's lots of
5: different street food vans kind of fixed ones and roaming ones and yeah. markets and all sorts and i think um I think people just really embrace that way of eating because yeah. it's very it's very casual yeah. it's very sociable you eat it with your hands it's pretty it's, good value as well it's cheap yeah. you you know you can have a beer with your mates and yeah. it's just you know it's a kind of it's almost a rejection of sort of
3: posh, fancy restaurants yeah. and tablecloths and, you know, we don't want to eat like that anymore. <laughs> and it's a rejection of rubbish, rubbish burgers and dogs yeah, because yeah, 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 yeah. the more adventurous people get, they can, yeah. t- they can have a little taste of things, you know, from all around Bits the world. And bobs, so yeah. yeah. And, and it yeah. makes people more adventurous as exactly. well. Exactly, and it's so, a
5: great way of trying kind of new spices <laughs> or new herbs and, you know,
3: just sort of broadening your horizons. Yeah, yeah. cool. Well, this feature is in our new july issue which is brand new out now the book's out now jen i think the book called, is out now yeah it's uh, a- master chef street food of the world um absolute press uh you buy it online but yeah it's it's a beautiful feature and thanks so much for coming in and talking to us through it today and hopefully see you again soon yeah thank you bye now Bye. and finally here's
0: adam at borough market
4: uh, hi, guys. Uh, I'm here with Matt from Ahead, sat in the lovely Borough Market. Hi, Matt. Good morning. Um, and we're just here to talk a bit about your bakery, really. Um, so, how did you first get into baking? Well, I,
1: I was fortunate, really. As a, as a kid, I had a mum who's a really keen cook and still is, so always had a, you know, a, I was always surrounded by food and cooking. Mm. Um, I left school, when I was 16 and went straight to do a YTS, youth training scheme, as they were called in the day, and worked as a chef. And I never looked back. I mean, I always wanted to be a chef. Loved it, loved cooking, loved the kitchen, loved the madness of it. You know, the sort of crazy hours and that. That whole world. It's
4: a bit like Rockstar, isn't it? You kind of live a different life to everyone else. Yeah, uh...
1: I loved it. You know, and it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I I loved... um, you know and i worked in that time in london when i suppose you know the likes of well i worked for simon hopkinson at babendum um i worked for phil howard at the square Man, you know they were really, really interesting people yeah, yeah. and the food scene was just changing so rapidly yeah and it was uh it was amazing to be a part of that in the 80s and 90s in london amazing, it was a yeah, really yeah. really exciting awesome. time
4: like absolutely Really changed the London food scene to how it is today. Really, oh, they were like, like the
1: original pioneers. It's yeah, yeah.
4: modern British cuisine. I think as we know it. Really, uh, yeah. people like Simon Hopkinson, Phil Howard. Yeah, oh, amazing. So, yeah, great, I was very lucky. I've been really fortunate to be.
1: To, yeah, and then I opened a bakery in 1999 when I was what 20 um, 28. Seems like a, a lifetime <laughs> ago. Um, yeah, and again, I sort of never looked back. And then. Well, then I became a baker.
4: Yeah, and was bread something that you had worked with or, and pastries and sort of on pastry yeah. section was that something that you'd worked with in restaurants and thought actually I could see myself
1: really- yeah I just yeah I did I just sort of found myself grav- sort of just drawn towards it I suppose yeah. and loved it and I think often it was in the restaurants nobody else wanted to do the pastry so I just ended up having to do it
4: <laughs> it, it is sort of like that un, people see it as slightly unglamorous I think because you're not in front of the hot stoves as much you know yeah. shaking pans um, it's a little bit cooler a little bit calmer There's sort of the real uh, energy comes at, at a complete different different times to the rest of the kitchen, it seems. Yeah. Uh, and um, where do you see the future of pastries and bread going? Like, do you, do you see, is there more interest in different flours people are asking for, gluten-free, like using spell flours like, and, and things like that?
1: Um, well, for us, we, so the, you know, three main elements to the business, I suppose, retail, there's our wholesale, we supply a lot of restaurants, and we have a school, so we teach yeah. a lot of baking. Um, we are really all about bread. Yeah, that's nice our you're... our big thing. Sourdough yeah. bread sourdough. is our is our primary focus in the bakery. I mean, we do our naughty little donuts and we make Everyone nice chocolate brownies. Donuts. Yeah, they've become a real sensation. Yeah, yeah. You know, they. But um, on the teaching side of it, we try to really focus on sourdough breads and on good Italian style breads, chia batters for catchers. Mm-hmm. You know, well hydrated doughs. Yeah. Nice wet sloppy (laughs) doughs. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what we're all
4: about. And I suppose it's teaching people that those wetter doughs i mean that is achievable at home it's not as scary as people think yeah you, know? you can do it yeah. You yeah get the temperatures right and just
1: you know stick to the rule book and you can you can make some great bread yeah yeah
4: definitely and that's that leads on perfectly to your uh, summer of sourdough little thing you're running uh during the summer uh, so it's teaching people how to make starters in their lunch break little 20 minute courses is yeah right?
1: and it, it's sort of it's sort of demystifying this whole thing of making a starter because it is it's a it's a terribly simple thing to do yeah yeah. Um, you really, you know, you need some some coarse, unrefined flour. You need some water. You need little pots. You need your finger
4: and a little and bit it, of time, and it'll yeah. do it. It'll do it. It'll literally work its own magic. Yeah, uh, it will.
1: Just leave it alone. And yeah. Just knowing what to look for, and you know how to feed it and how to look after it. And it's lovely to, you know, what we really like to do is to get people really involved with the bakery business. We, have, we do a lot of work with school children, local schools and, you know, general public. So we really have created an environment in Borough, basically in Borough Market, where people can come in and really experience what we do. Yeah. And so more than, you know, books are great and TV is great, but it, there's nothing like actually being right in the middle of it.
4: Well, I think, that, I think that's, uh, for anyone who's makes bread at home, the more you do it and the more you feel the dough, it's, yeah. it, the better. You know, you know, you learn that, okay, that, that feels quite tight, that needs a bit longer, it needs to ferment, yeah. it's not as light as I'd like it, or it needs a little bit more water, or the only way to practice is just to get your yeah, hands you've on got
1: it. To, you've got to be doing it, yeah. yeah.
4: And there's a big party. On the nineteenth as well, so the' sort of like you come and you're gonna if you come to the classes during the week, you take a little bit of starter away from from that and then uh, it's a competition to see if you can bake the best loaf uh from using the bread ahead starter
1: yeah yeah we have that we've done that we did one last year it was really a lot of people turn up actually with um with their loaf of bread
4: yeah. Is it, a few, is it some nice loaves and a few shockers yeah, as well? There,
1: I mean, yeah, there, there was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, there, was, <laughs> there was some really good stuff, yeah, and there was some um, yeah, some quite um, creative, interesting things as well, <laughs> let's say.
4: So if you were going to give a few tips to someone who wanted to bake some sourdough at home, what would you suggest? That, not like the secrets, but the insights. Uh, or?
1: Well, I suppose you've got to see it as a journey. So, you know, you're not going to probably, well, the chances are you won't make the most amazing loaf of bread on day one. But it's all about you know following a path towards something. So, you know, and, and improving. We're improving. We're learning still. I you think that,
4: that's that's even uh, like professional bakers. It's kind of like this constant roller coaster process where some days your bread's not as good as yesterday, and you're constantly yeah. just trying to make it the better for tomorrow. And you just think you got to like assess why, like look at why. Was it not as best as it could have been today? And yeah,
1: every day is different. <clears throat> you know, there's different humidity. You know, at the moment it's very hot in London. What was it 32 degrees? It was about 40 in the bakery yesterday. It's a bit of a nightmare. So you've in those conditions, you've really got to know
4: what you're doing. Yeah, to get things right. Yeah, the fermentation pro- process happens a lot faster yeah, it when it's all uh, screaming hot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sort of um, not as easy to control and keep keep. You sort of turn your back on it and it'll be bubbling over and uh, yeah. gone a little bit too far.
1: But it's achievable, you know. But you've got to really—that you know—that's when you've got—you see the really good bakers and people who know what they're doing. You've got to, in those circumstances where it gets very hot or very cold, or, you know, you've got to know how to
4: correct things. Yeah. But and do you think it's uh, like—is it really important to you that people eat good bread at home? Like, is it? Spot, oh, it's spot.
1: vital. Yeah. it's absolutely vital. It's such an important. Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, I always say to my my attendees in our, in our classes the, but for me, the baking, the artisan baking industry is very similar to coffee as an in industry, and it's they've both grown massively in the past sort of ten fifteen years, and it's a bit like comparing, if you look at sliced white bread, you know the um, the real basic yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah and a really good artisan crusty white sourdough, mm. it's a bit like comparing a really decent cup of coffee with instant coffee. There's They're both no, no, coffee, yeah, but, yeah, you, know, the,
4: at, you know... There's no comparison, really, but in they the flavour. So,
1: so they shouldn't both really be called bread. No. Because they are so different mm. as products.
4: And it kind of seems we're actually sort of getting back to how we were sort of pre-first world war, well, we're actually looking at... Where our flowers coming from, how it's yeah. milled, what's in it, what how it's grown, if there's like you know pesticides used in it, and it, it we're starting to really uh, that was another I was wanted to talk about was sort of like is the customer becoming more discerning and they asking more questions about those sort of things, yeah, like yeah, through you know things like the Bake Off and well that's Instagram you know that
1: that's what's so nice in our schools because we well created an environment where people could come in and pick our brains, yeah. And the reason I really did it was because I was forever working on the market store at Borough, and customers were just so inquisitive. What's this? What's that? What's in the rye bread? Which mm. flour do you use? Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. You know, endless questions. And you can't really satisfy their, you know, their questions in that environment. So we built the school really as a, a stage to do that, to host, mm. you know, workshops, yeah, yeah. with professional bakers in them, so they can really, you know have a good dig around you know really sort of get the answers to those questions
4: yeah and I think like making bread is all about asking questions it's like it's such a it's such a three ingredients flour salt and water but there's so many variables and um yeah I think even like as we're saying even good bakers have off days and they you know they have to ask you have to be asking why yeah why did that happen I mean it's like a never-ending uh learning process yeah, i think it's
1: always the same always different
4: yeah i think everyone's sort of just chasing that perfect loaf and you sort of don't even know if you've already baked it or if you're going to bake it it's just like <laughs> yeah,
1: it might have already happened yeah yeah
4: and <laughs> um, and i couldn't come to barry market and talk to you guys without talking about florian just really quickly uh some of the bakers who whacked uh, a terrorist over the head with a crate and then sheltered people um yeah what an amazing person yeah i mean
1: it's you know i suppose uh, sort of that momentary decision-making. Um, everybody reacts in their own way. And yeah, Florian was just trying to make people safe, as yeah. far as I know. So, wow, you know. He was pretty pretty shaken up.
4: Yeah, wow. I think he shows the spirit of London, you know. Yeah. Sort of stand up to it. But
1: it's a, it's amazing how quickly the customers are back, you know. I mean, yeah, two definitely. weeks down the line and really, you know. But it's it stirred us all up, really, you know. Yeah. And it's still, even now, it just, it's just feels has Quite have surreal. you felt any
4: sort of effect on the business at all i mean i was here um, on friday it seemed pretty pretty packed but some people were saying oh i don't know whether it's as busy as it usually is or yeah, i
1: think i think that people will just continue to come i mean yeah, it's uh, i mean why not you know it's uh
4: you can't live your life shying away from it you've got to no. sort of just carry on as u- business as usual
1: yeah i live next door i live literally around the corner oh. there and um yeah we all just just going about our lives we you know i have no plans to move and You know, I don't think anybody else does, really. No, and we shouldn't,
4: no. And Mm. final question, Um, I sort of ask all of my baker friends, what's your opinion of Paul Hollywood? Well, you know, I mean,
1: I I love him because, I I mean, it's, you know, anybody who can, you know, make such a success out of bread, you know, I think it's just so important, really, of what fundamentally his messages and what he's doing from my perspective is getting people interested in baking absolutely yeah so that's great you know we need that at it's any very, level it doesn't matter yeah, it doesn't yeah matter what matter. they're making it's, or it's all about you know engagement and getting people interested in the product yeah and uh, i've met him a few times he's come to the bakery and He's a very charming man. He's, yeah, I can I see why he's sort of so successful on telly. Because yeah. he's just, you know, he's got that sort of naughtiness to him.
4: Which he, he, he does have he that will, twinkle in his eye, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, and, and it works.
1: Yeah. You know, so it's a. Uh, and I, I've tried to do some you know, bits of filming, and I, I, it's so hard to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it's. So I, you know, have huge admiration for people who, can, who just have that natural gift
4: just can switch it on and yeah. uh and that, well, i suppose yeah. actually when it's good and when you're good you probably just are like that all the time you're yeah. sort of charismatic it's natural engaging sort of uh yeah. person yeah so oh, yeah lovely. for the
1: industry he's done wonders really because yeah. it's, it's just you know waking people's senses to oh look let's let's make some bread let's do something let's yeah. you know get our hands you know which is what we're all about is getting our hands dirty and really well personal not dirty but you know, yeah, it's yeah, getting yeah. your hands in the mix in and doing it
4: yeah you know and that's yeah and that obviously with your school that's massively important to you is yeah. people actually going home and 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 making their own bread and yeah. and uh doing those processes because for me it's a very therapeutic process and I, I bake a loaf probably a week yeah um and it's yeah it's i mean it is a th- very therapeutic process to sort of make a dough watch it rise and then that surprise element of when you bang it in the oven and you don't really know how it's going to turn out but yeah, sometimes it's good you always get something a little bit different yeah always yeah. well Matt thank you very much for uh, talking today it's That's been a an pleasure. pleasure cheers thank you
0: thank you to everyone who featured on today's Olive Magazine podcast if you like what you heard please do us a massive favour and take two minutes out of your day to review and rate us on iTunes it means that even more lovely people like you get to hear us remember the new issue of olive magazine is out right now in all good supermarkets and news agents plus you can also download it and any back issues you might want straight to your ipad via the olive magazine app plus we've plenty more to inspire your foodie adventures at olivemagazine.com which we update every day with new content so happy eating happy drinking and we'll see you next week